Coming up in this episode. The nice thing about behavioral interventions, they have very little side effects. We're not talking about pharmacological treatments here where, look, if you try it and you're like, okay, I'm able to cut down on engaging in this addiction from seven hours to three hours, and that's a net benefit to my life, great. If it doesn't work for you because it's hard or it doesn't fit into your schedule, then ultimately it doesn't matter what the research says. It's not a great intervention for you. So, you know, that's that's what I would encourage people, you know, to think about in and of itself is just like, is this practical, applicable and beneficial to my life? Yeah, well said. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Welcome to the new year, new decade. This is 2020 and we have our first podcast taping of the new year. And it's with my good friend, Dr. Cameron Seppa. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be back. I think when we initially connected, it was initially around some of the early ideas, I would say within the community around keto and intermittent fasting. That was probably a conversation two plus almost three years ago. Right. And it's been fascinating to see keto and intermittent fasting go from fairly niche topics to something that's basically a top Google trend, something that celebrities are adopting. So that's definitely an interest area that has overlapped over the last few years. But I'm really excited to explore more of your recent work and your mm -hmm. recent thinking. You might have seen Cameron's leadership around this notion of dopamine fasting. I think there's a funny or fun New York Times article that profiled <laughs> you and the broader explorations of people fasting from dopamine. So right. let's start there. Sure. I know that there's the New York Times portrayal of dopamine fasting is. Yeah. So maybe let's define what the actual definition from yourself is in terms sure. of dopamine fasting and how people are maybe mischaracterizing it. I'll do a quick background for people who didn't see the last HVMN podcast that I was on. So I'm a psychologist professor by training. I'm a professor of psychiatry at the UCSF School of Medicine. And I have a private practice where I do executive coaching with mostly CEOs and VCs out here in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that I noticed in my private practice, I, you know, not only do I treat sort of the spectrum of conditions that are out there, but do a lot of health and performance optimization as well. And obviously people are familiar with people who are dealing with addiction and coming to therapy to deal with that when it comes to substance or alcohol abuse. But I started noticing more and more that there are these behavioral addictions, quote unquote, that are increasingly becoming common. I would just see that more and more in my clientele. And so what do I mean by behavioral diet addictions? So in addition to obviously substance and alcohol use, you see things like smartphone and internet overuse. And in fact, in the DSM, which is like the psychiatric Bible for diagnosing psychiatric conditions, internet gaming disorders actually now recognizes disorder because people just like compulsively play video games for like mm -hmm. 10, 12 hours a day to a point that it's actually problematic. So I think there's increasing recognition of internet and smartphone overuse as an addiction uh, and actually a valid one by the psychological and psychiatric community. You see sort of emotional or binge eating, actually binge eating disorder is also recognized as being highly problematic um, when people are like emotionally or impulsively sort of eating to a degree that obviously negatively affects their health. You see obviously gambling and shopping being addictions as well. Gambling long been known, shopping is sort of a little bit more like the female version of sort of gambling um, becoming increasingly common. You also see sort of thriller uh, novelty seeking as a common addiction where obviously there's people know the notion of being an adrenaline junkie. But I also think that you can do that with information. You see kind of people going down Reddit rabbit holes and just getting novel information because it satiates their curiosity, obviously, which is in a way that's excessive. And there's obviously pornography and masturbation. 
where you know people are overusing these things to a point where it's detrimental to their relationships offer times or their time so none of these things are intrinsically bad but we're talking about degrees because all psychiatric disorders essentially fall on a spectrum and the way that we consider something to be a problem is whether it causes distress first and foremost right does it actually really bother the person like if you occasionally watch pornography and you know um it's not a problem in your life doesn't bother you then it's not a, it's not an issue it's not a problem but if you're doing it multiple times a day it's getting in the way of your relationship with your boyfriend and girlfriend you feel like um you know it's causing you issues then it's an issue the second criteria is impairment right if it's getting in the way of your social or your occupational functioning like you're affecting your grades at school it's getting in the way of you arriving on time at work that can obviously be problematic and the final thing is sort of like if there's an addictive quality to it meaning that you've tried to stop you want to stop but you somehow can't no matter what you do so that's the criteria that you know a clinician like myself looks at when we decide something is actually like a, a true addiction or a true sort of psychological issue and i started noticing more and more in my practice that it was less and less actually the substance issues that people were coming in more and a lot more of these sort of behavioral addictions and the way that we treat these is using evidence-based behavioral therapies the most common and gold standard of which is cbt what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy and there's literally decades of research showing that cognitive behavioral therapy is incredibly effective for not only mood disorders like anxiety and depression but also sort of these impulse control disorders that fall on the spectrum of these behavioral addictions and so you know using this in my private practice with a lot of these clientele notice that this is becoming more and more of an issue i think partly because of the ubiquitousness of the internet and smartphones where you know i talked about these these six different categories of behavioral addictions if you think about them all of them are now sort of accessible through your smartphone where obviously gambling's been around for a long time but you literally have to drive to reno or vegas you know from silicon valley if you're going to engage in that addiction so it naturally like limited or compartmentalized it but now there's literally offshore internet gambling sites where you can do that literally 24/7 in the convenience of your phone same thing with the shopping that we talked about like there's literally shopping apps so you can go on and purchase things 5 minutes between a break where before you'd have to go out to westfield mall to do it so the increasing convenience of these i think has made these addictions easier literally to engage in and a lot more ubiquitous to do so and these sites are also hyper optimized even more so than a casino or a mall ever was where they know you they know your habits they know what games you like and they literally design these things to be hyper addictive yeah i'm curious to hear your thoughts around the shift of these addictive or flaws where i think you bring up a good point does modernity the modern culture is this in your estimation drive more like total nump like a more people with these personality or behavioral issues or it's the same number of people that has always been a part of humanity's flaws yeah and we're just moving from substance issues or other issues to more of these dopamine related behavioral issues what is your thought there i think there's twofold phenomenon that's going on is one as i was saying these things are more ubiquitous and more addictive than ever where there's probably there was more natural limitations or restrictions to you know doing these things and now it's just so easy literally to do so and some of these things some of the behavioral addictions are actually less stigmatized right where obviously if you have a drug problem generally society you know looks downward on it but because i think society unfortunately doesn't regard for instance like internet addiction as an addiction at least not in the west it's interesting though if you contrast that to china and south korea where there are internet addiction boot camps over there and in fact an interesting anecdote is the chinese government has essentially instituted a version of dopamine fasting as national law 
So if you are a minor under the age of 18 in China, you are not allowed to play video games between the hours of 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. So you can't do it overnight, so it messes with your sleep. During the weekdays, you're only allowed to use it for an hour and a half. And then on weekends and holidays, you're only allowed to use it for three hours. And software developers there who are making the games are actually legally mandated to build that into the software as a feature in order to prevent overuse. There's even limitations on how much you can spend in uh, in-app game purchases and parents are alerted if their kids are like exceeding these things, right? Yeah. So I think they've recognized how much of a problem it is because they have a larger population. Gaming is more ubiquitous. They've had high-speed internet, you know, more widespread than we have for a long period of time. So I think a lot of the trends that are five, 10 years ahead, they're seeing and they're dealing with right now. America is quite frankly slow to sort of, you know, catch up. But we're seeing it obviously more and more. I think internet gaming is the most obvious because it's a very slippery slope and these games are hyper designed to be addictive. But I think think the second issue is that we're also in a society, especially uh, American society that's hyper individualistic, where I think the susceptibility to these addictions is higher than ever, where a lot of um, what Francis Weller's psychotherapist colleague of mine calls our primary satisfactions. So for instance, our need to have deep, meaningful human connection is harder and harder to achieve in modern society because it is so individualistic. If you're a smart, ambitious person, you know, I've probably moved around seven times in my adult life because you're always trying to go to the best school or find the best work, which is great. And it's opened up a whole door of opportunity, but it obviously makes your relationships more unstable. It's hard to have deeper, longstanding connections. And so I think people try to fill these things with amnesia and anesthesia sort of the the way that people numb themselves amnesia being that they you know they forget a lot of the traumas that they've sort of you know go through and anesthesia and that we numb them through these behavioral addictions by constantly trying to distract suppress and avoid sort of the negative feelings that we have when we feel sort of alone or distressed in modern society so i think you really have the perfect storm of a society that's incredibly disconnected incredibly lonely incredibly stressed and overworked And then you put on top of that incredibly tempting slot machine that's sitting in your pocket, essentially 24-7, tempting you with an easy way to feel temporarily better. And thus, you have what you have, which is an incredibly addicted society. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about is how do we deal with nutrition and physical performance or human performance in the modern context? And Mm -hmm. I think what you're describing is... What I'm also personally interested, how does one live a life well lived, especially with all these potential vices in your pocket 24-7? So I do want to unpack that, but perhaps this is the perfect time to just define some of the key terms that we're using. So you mentioned CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then let's define dopamine fasting and how you came up with that term. I already have a sense that through intermittent fasting, there's an interesting parallel from food consumption to you know, brain stimulus consumption, but I'll let you define those two terms. Totally. And it's very related. I actually would argue that fasting is not just about what you don't put in your mouth, but also what you're avoiding putting in your eyes and ears, because it's not just the nutrition that we need to be careful in terms of how we feed ourselves, but the stimuli that we get in terms of what we pay attention to and what we focus on is also worth fasting from. So dopamine fasting is essentially an evidence-based behavioral technique to help deal with addictive behaviors. That's the definition that I use. And it stems from CBT in that it essentially borrows two techniques from CBT to help people deal with these addictive behaviors and regain behavioral flexibility over them. So unfortunately, like there's this huge media storm about dopamine fasting and the, the definitions were very, very skewed. 
so I'll tell you what it is and, and how I use it in my clinical practice. So the first part of it is identifying what the problem is, right? So we talked about six different common behavioral addictions. It doesn't mean that you need to fast or withdraw from all of them. The question is, if there's one of them that's particularly problematic for you, then that's the thing that you should focus on. So for instance, if it is sort of internet or social media use, then you can focus on that. Well, if you don't have an issue with emotional eating, then I don't think you necessarily need to do that. So it's really personalized in the sense that it's focusing on whatever it is that you're, you know, maybe overusing or you want to rein back in. If you don't have a problem with any of your behaviors, then you don't need to dopamine fast. It's not prescription necessarily for everyone. But I would say a lot of people, they probably obviously want to improve themselves while they listen to podcasts like this. So that's the first part is what's the focus? And that's very individualized. Once you identify the thing that you want to work on, you engage in a principle called stimulus control. And stimulus control is basically, you know, a fundamental behavioral principle of making it hard to engage in the behavior by removing the stimulus or the trigger to it. So for instance, if it's a smartphone, it's obviously you can do things like keeping it out of your bedroom, right? So you're not always like reaching for it the moment that you feel anxious, lonely, tired, or bored. You can obviously, if it's on a desktop, you can engage in website blocking software. Like if you're going on social media, you can actually use software that blocks that, or at least blocks it for particular periods of time where you're you know, trying to be productive with your school or work. You can engage in activities that are incompatible with the addiction, right? So if it's a smartphone, then obviously if you're going out and playing soccer, you're probably not going to be on your phone. It's just incompatible with doing that thing, right? And fourth, you can obviously use social accountability where if you tell your friends and family, hey, if you notice that when we're sitting here and having a conversation, I'm grabbing for my phone or I'm not paying attention to you, tell me about it, right? And that provides social accountability. And that way you have to rely a little bit less on willpower to, you know, not engage in the behavior. But, you know, if you keep it out of sight or out of mind, sort of out of reach, it becomes easier to do that. And there's good evidence that shows that stimulus control is like the first thing that you teach someone when you're dealing with an addiction is like, don't keep alcohol around the house, right? So you don't put yourself in temptations way. Um, and there's lots of ways of doing that. Yeah, and it's almost like common sense, but like it really works. I mean, just speaking from personal experience around eating ketogenic or intermittent fasting, I literally don't have snacks or you know, chips or anything at my house. So even, and when I was at home over the holidays, my parents have these kind of candies or chocolates that are lying around at home. There's no willpower needed to, to, to like not break my dietary restrictions at my parents home. You got to think about it. You got to exercise willpower. Right. So it's uh, fascinating to see that stimulus control applies both to intermittent fasting from a dietary nutrition perspective, as well as behavioral. Yeah, totally. It doesn't matter what the stimulus is in particular. But you know, we all have to recognize that we're human beings. I'm the same way. Like my friends are like, wow, how do you maintain a ketogenic diet or eat so clean? I'm like, I don't have bad food at home, basically. (laughs) You know, it's like meats, fruits and vegetables. So but yeah, if I had chocolate chip cookies lying around, I'd eat them too. That's why I don't. The second part of it is something called exposure and response prevention or ERP which comes from the exposure therapy component of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's a little bit more of the art of teaching someone impulse control, right? The unfortunate thing I think in modern society is we've become incredibly impulsive and self-control has just been thrown out the window um, because some of these things are just so ubiquitous and we indulge in them so often. Like I don't think most people realize because they're not paying attention that you literally probably pick up and open your phone over 100 times a day if you're an average smartphone user. And there's very few behaviors that you can point to that's that's over 100 times a day you're doing anything consciously, right? So I think because of that repeated pattern, uh, we're not even 
aware of the effect that it has on us. So what exposure and response prevention is, is during the times where you decided, okay, I am not going to engage in this behavior. It's actually almost like a mindful practice of noticing when the temptation arises or the urge arises to engage in it. So a lot of times people aren't even aware when they go and reach for their smartphone. It's almost like semi-unconscious or subconscious when they're kind of like doing it impulsively because it's usually triggered by either push notification or by an internal emotion that they want to sort of get rid of. They're feeling sort of bored or anxious. They're sitting in a waiting room. I walk into doctor's office waiting rooms all the time. Like everyone's on their phone, right? Because nobody can tolerate boredom anymore. So when you notice is that, that true, like you see old photos of people <laughs> in subway cars with newspapers. That's right. Right. So like, is that impulse control is smartphone or just people are generally always bored? I what mean, do you think? I, uh, boredom has been around obviously forever. I think the tolerance of it has decreased over time. Okay. Right? I can buy that. Yeah. Um, where, you know, people just don't like sit there for very long anymore. Yeah. So when you notice sort of the urge or the impulse to arise, what you do is you engage in a practice called urge surfing. And urge surfing is essentially noticing the urge arising, noticing where it's arising somatically in your body, mm -hmm. right? You're like, okay, I feel kind of anxious right now. Maybe I kind of feel that sort of in my chest. It kind of feels like maybe an eight out of 10 in intensity. I don't like that feeling. And I usually try to distract myself, right? By reaching for my phone in that moment. But let's kind of just watch this urge in this moment and see what it does. It's almost like a wave that kind of rises in the ocean. Waves come, they kind of go. If you sit there for like two minutes, what generally happens, the anxiety and the urge to quell it by grabbing for your phone will usually dissipate, right? Maybe not, it won't go away entirely, but maybe that 8 out of 10 will go to 5 or a 4 out of 10. And then you don't feel that strong need to do it anymore, right? And you also just like learn that by not engaging in that behavior, not only does it come down, but if you keep doing that over, over and over again, right? So instead of grabbing for that phone 100 times a day, maybe you've only grabbed for it a couple times out of the 100 times, there's a process that happens, it's called habituation, right? Where that pattern of behavior or the anxiety that's associated with it will slowly and naturally sort of extinguish or diminish over time. And we do this in exposure therapy, like if someone has a phobia, for instance, and they're a 10 out of 10 every time they see whatever a spider or whatever phobia that they have, if you just repeatedly expose them to it without engaging in the, the typical kind of behaviors that they engage in that are avoidant, they usually will get used to it over time gradually, right? So it's almost a process of unlearning that happens that allows people to have, again, more behavioral flexibility over it, um, over their behavior over time. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it seems much more intuitive when people talk about personal training for workouts, when you're right. practicing like an Olympic lift or these very technical movements, like a really very proper deadlift or squat that someone is like habituating you to the exact movement right but it just seems perhaps less intuitive for the lay person to think about the same approaches to their behavior do you perceive that to be the case that there just seems to be more openness to physical training rather than cognitive training i mean to me they're very much the two sides of the same coin you're, yeah. you're training how one responds to inputs and how whether that's a physical request of an input or a cognitive request for an input and how that manifests in terms of how you how you perform. What is your sense when, when you engage or explore these ideas with folks? Do people get it? I think most people have a pretty intuitive sense that there's a need for it. Absolutely. Okay. Right. I think physical training is easier because it's easier to observe, right? When you're doing like three sets of 10 reps and you see the progress that you're gaining, whether it's in terms of strength or muscular hypertrophy. But some of this internal training is a little bit more subtle, right? 
where like this process of um, exposure and responsive engine, if you were watching someone do it, you may not notice them doing anything, yeah. but inside they're kind of fighting this internal battle of like, oh man, I kind of feel bored right now. I really want to go to like infinitely scroll through Twitter yep. in order to alleviate that. But I'm watching myself having that tendency and I'm restrict preventing myself from doing it, right. right? I'm watching and sort of surfing that urge. From the outside, it might not look like anything, right? And in the moment, you may or may not remember to do that. Right. So I think that's why it's more challenging, in fact, than physical training in some sense. But it's also, I think, incredibly more rewarding because, you know, over time, essentially, the ability to regain control over our behavior opens up the floodgates in terms of having beautiful and meaningful life. Right. Right. When you're automatic in terms of your behavioral responses you almost lose your free will which is kind of a sad thing that's literally almost like the definition of addiction right, right? where it's it really almost becomes like a brain disease and your willpower is not even in question because you've kind of become so habituated to engaging in things so that's why i actually think it's important to understand the science of it and i'll, I'll talk about the science of actually how it works because i know this audience um, likes to dig into the science so if you've ever taken a course on psychology or behaviorism um, there's a notion of classical conditioning, right? So this is the classic example of like Pavlov's dogs, right? Where you have an unconditioned stimulus, which is like tasty food. And you pair that with um, a neutral stimulus, which is like, you know, a ringing of a bell. So a dog might not think anything of a ringing bell. It doesn't really mean anything to it. But when you pair the food with the ringing bell through repeated trials, they associate ah, the ringing bell means I'm going to get fed and I'm going to have what used to be an unconditioned response, me salivating because I'm anticipating the food, now becomes a conditioned response where every time I hear the bell, even before the food comes out, the dog is going to salivate because it's a conditioned that response over time. Now, human beings, because we're mammals, engage in the same kind of conditioning that happens. What's interesting, though, and is common in addictions is that our sort of stimuli are actually twofold. So there's internal stimuli, right? So there's negative emotional states that most people are trying to avoid, which is sadness, depression, anxiety, loneliness, boredom. Any sort of negative emotional state can actually become a stimulus in and of itself, right? Where when we feel that internal trigger, we're feeling that negative feeling that we don't like arising, our automatic tendency is to numb, suppress, avoid, or distract ourselves from it. In addition to that, we have the external triggers, right? So the smartphone itself becomes an external trigger. Presence of food becomes an external trigger. And then on top of that, there may be extra notifications that we're getting. That little red dot, which didn't really mean anything, just like the bell, over time becomes associated with novelty. Oh boy, I'm getting a message. Or oh boy, there's a new interesting scientific article that I love to read, right? And so that's how it becomes more addicting, because not only do we have to fight our external triggers, but we have internal triggers as well. And these become associated with one another. On top of that, there's two different types of reinforcement that make it particularly addictive. So um, everyone's familiar with the idea of rewards and punishment or punishments, and we call it reinforcement is the sort of the fancier term for it. There's actually two different types of reinforcement. There's positive reinforcement and there's negative reinforcement. And positive and negative doesn't mean good or bad. It means the introduction or with the withdrawal of. So positive reinforcement is classic reward. So when you check your smartphone and you read an interesting article, you get satisfaction from that because it satiates your curiosity or provides you with novel stimulation that is kind of, you know, reinforced sort of through the dopamine mechanism. Mm -hmm. 
In addition to that, there's negative reinforcement that happens as well, as well. And that's the taking away of all the bad feelings that you're having. So you can imagine the moment you're feeling anxious, you pull out your smartphone, you get that double reinforcement that happens because not only do you feel less bad, the anxiety you're distracted from, but now you get the novelty and interesting information of the article. And in my experience, addiction, whenever you have that double reinforcement, that's when it becomes especially sort of addictive over time. Interesting. And this is all mediated essentially by dopamine, right? So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's responsible for reinforcement and learning. It's not a bad thing. In fact, we need it, right? Because we know in certain conditions where dopamine functioning is abnormal or lacking, you get conditions like ADHD or Parkinson's disorder, right? So dopamine is not evil. It's not an enemy. It's, It's like a normal, healthy thing that's important for our brain functioning. However, normal dopaminergic functioning essentially gets hijacked when you have these sort of especially addictive reinforcement properties. So the point of dopamine fasting is not to fast literally from dopamine. It's to fast from behaviors that are reinforced by dopamine that we particularly lose our ability to control, you know, in a way that's healthy and flexible. Yeah, it makes sense. I think, again, I'm just bringing it to the dietary nutrition analogy here. For example, insulin. People talk about controlling the amount of insulin, but you have no insulin, that's type 1 diabetic, right? You don't want zero insulin, you're probably not alive. Same thing with glucose. You have zero blood sugar in your system, you're probably dead. Right. I think, again, the right exact kind of parallel here with you want a certain healthy range of dopamine and let's make sure that you can keep within that range. Yeah, exactly. And dopamine is not something that's easily measurable anyway. So for the purposes of someone engaging this, The point is not to reduce. It's not like you can measure it like ketones. The point that when people ask, like, what's the ultimate point of dopamine fasting? It's to spend less time on behaviors that you decide are not worthwhile, right? Then it's not necessarily to engage in an abstinence-only model, right? Where with substances like alcohol, you may decide, okay, I'm really going to quit drinking because it's problematic or I'm not going to use these sorts of drugs. The unfortunate thing is with the internet. If you, especially if you have a professional job or you go to, you know, a school and a modern university, you cannot avoid the internet, yeah. right? It's part of our unfortunate modern living. So that's why when you look at systematic reviews of what is the gold standard for internet addiction, all the clinicians and scientists have essentially come to the consensus that abstinence-only models are not realistic, essentially, in modern society. So you need to engage in um, the stimulus control kind of principles where we restrict it for certain periods of time. And so the last and final piece of dopamine fasting is actually very analogous to intermittent fasting, where whether you're doing like a 12-12 or a 16-8 schedule that people may be familiar with intermittent fasting, dopamine fasting has similar principles where you essentially want to schedule what I call fasting schedules where you don't engage in the behavior that's problematic and feasting schedules where you actually decide, okay, it is okay to do so. What I particularly recommend, and you can kind of customize it to your, you know, your lifestyle and your preferences, is to take one to four hours at the end of every day to withdraw or fast from the behavior that's an issue for you. I would say if it's really hard for you to like not use internet or phone or whatever it is that you're working on, just start with an hour and then you kind of expand to like four hours. I recommend one day at the end of every week. So like a Saturday or a Sunday. And, you know, you can decide, OK, I'm, that's going to be my tech free day if yeah. that's the, the issue for you. One weekend every quarter. So like, take the whole weekend, a Saturday and a Sunday, go outside, go take a little like local trip, do something different where it reduces the temptation to engage in that behavior and actually a whole week every year. So when you most people go on vacation, at least a week or two, 
every year, that may be a useful time to sort of withdraw and practice almost like an extended fast, just like we do with intermittent fasting from that problematic behavior. So that's the idea is to set up sort of these prolonged extended fasting schedules. Yep. And the point of it is, it's to break that stimulus response curve. And I think that's the important thing I want to emphasize is it's not the behaviors that are inherently problematic. It's the habit that's problematic. And so when we put it on a time schedule, you're doing things because, oh, okay, it's time for me to go check my email. It's not because I was bored and I was feeling bad and now I'm going to check my email as a way of numbing my emotional response. And so when you set things on a schedule, it re significantly reduces the addictiveness of it because you're taking away that sort of the association with the internal or the external trigger. So with the feasting schedule, you can add that if you decide, okay, one to four hours at the end of the every day is not enough. Like you could obviously be on social media for 12 hours during the day and decide, okay, I'm not going to use it for four. And that may not be sufficient for you if you really want to cut down. Yeah. So with a feasting schedule, you might want to put limits on how much you do use. So if it's not, you know, a behavior that you want to engage a lot in, you might want to say, okay, five to 30 minutes, maybe one to three times a day is reasonable for me to engage. So an example of this is like, okay, I do want to use social media, maybe it's professionally helpful for me, I got to check my DMs and make sure I didn't miss anything. Say, okay, I'm going to spend five to 15 minutes after every meal, I'll check it, I'll literally use a timer to make sure that I'm not overusing it. And I'm, you know, have my wits about me when I'm sort of engaged in that hyper focus. And then at the end of that, whenever that timer goes off at the end of five and 15 minutes, I'm going to go back and do what I, whatever it is I'm doing. So you're literally capping it to a certain limited amount of time. And you're going through the formalities of making sure that it is restricted. So that by the end of every day, you'd be like, I did not spend more than 15 to 45 minutes engaging that behavior so that I can have the rest of my time to enjoy and spend on the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. I think we've all been on unplugged vacations where you just feel super refreshed or like a nice long weekend camping trip. And you're like, wow, yep. I feel so much happier. And I think going back into the science and the evidence, I know you talk about evidence-based techniques. So how does one do a RCT on this? Is that the point of doing a randomized controlled trial to study these techniques? When you talk about evidence, uh, are there studies, are there clinical endpoints end that you've found in your practice where you're like, yes, this has improved outcomes by X percent over, yeah. you know, what, what can you talk about in terms of either published literature or in, in, your, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, the greater therapy from which these techniques are derived have a cornucopia of evidence. So like you, if you look at the evidence on CBT for impulse control disorders, CBT for Internet addiction, you know, there's huge amounts of published studies, including enough that there's probably reviews and meta analyses at this point. So, I, you know, if you talk to anyone in sort of the psychology or psychiatry communities about is CBT generally effective for impulse control disorders, of which internet addiction is one, it's overwhelming, I think the evidence, these are two particular techniques that are derived from that. So that's why I call it an evidence based technique, or at least it's an evidence informed technique. So that these particular practices that are derived from the bigger therapy, you know, they're not made up, they're informed by being in use essentially for decades. Okay. The idea in particular with dopamine fasting, by the way, is it's not a replacement for therapy. Like if you actually have an addiction and you're not able to control it on your own, you should go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and get full treatment because these are techniques that are typically used as part of a, a bigger treatment package. Now, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, 
all disorders, including addictions, fall on a spectrum where you might have a mild problem. Maybe you decide I don't have, it's not worth the time or energy to necessarily go into treatment for it. And that's why I wanted to popularize dopamine fasting and say, hey, look, these are two particular techniques from CBT that you can do on your own. As you said, a lot of them are common sense, but here's a very like strict protocol and structure for how you can actually practically implement this in your life. And hopefully that'll help you sort of rein in this behavior. Yeah. There was a particular study actually that looked at this with college students. So what they did is they had college students um, engage in um, essentially dopamine fasting from Facebook. So on average, I think they were using Facebook for 1.9 or almost two hours a day. And then they said essentially for a whole week, they took two groups, they randomized the group. So one just said, you know, do what you normally do. The other group was told not to engage in Facebook use for a week. And they found not only did it free their time, so 13, 14 hours a week they saved, obviously, yeah. that they weren't spending on Facebook. But without the study scientists telling them to do so, because they had all this free time, they started engaging in more healthy behaviors. So they're spending more time cooking, spending more time engaging in health behaviors, because now all the time that everyone says they're busy because they're wasting two hours a day on social media, yeah. they're like, oh, great, now I can actually take care of myself, right? And I think there was a 17% reduction in depressive symptoms, interestingly, as well, that they found as a result of that study. That's pretty cool. I mean, I think when people talk about intermittent fasting as a lifestyle, you're definitely not, you know, usually using that alone as a way to treat a disease. And it sounds like you're almost taking that same approach towards potential being proactive or preventative on cognitive uh, behavioral issues. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting parallel where... It sounds like within China, right? You referenced that people, literally the government is mandating regulation around some of these software games. I'm curious from your perspective, is that, you know, communist government, nanny state type behavior, right. or is that sensible regulation from the top down? Can you see that working in America where there's much more of, as you mentioned, hyper individuality in terms yeah. of, yes, like you can do whatever you want. You have freedom to. Sure dopamine fast from your game or you have the freedom to play 17 hours of uh warcraft curious to get your thoughts there and and how you might see this playing out from a, a government or regulatory level yeah i mean we obviously have different political systems and it starts to get into like you know your your political sort of uh philosophy yeah. or beliefs i'll answer a little bit more from like a behavioral economics perspective which is like i, I think it is very hard to at a federal level sort of mandate um some of this stuff. I think when it comes to certain things that are incredibly addicting, you know, I think the government has taken a strong stance, right? So obviously when you talk substances, schedule one substances, but like ah, these don't really have any medicinal use and they're so dangerous that like, well, we should probably not just have heroin be ubiquitous everywhere. Yeah. You know, that can be debated, but you know, I think a, a softer stance when, especially when it comes to these behavioral addictions, behavioral addictions do differ from substance addictions in that there generally isn't withdrawal symptoms that you have from these things like a heroin withdrawal is a pretty significant physiological thing. People are incredibly uncomfortable. If you withdraw from alcohol, you can actually have seizures, for instance, you're not going to get that from withdrawing from video games. Now, you may actually have a depressed mood and other things, but it's not quite on the same level. And that's why I think there's an unfortunate debate about isn't an addiction or not. Maybe it's not in the same way as obviously a substance is, but is it as problematic? In some ways, it actually may be worse because some of these behaviors, such as internet addiction, if someone's spending 10, 12 hours a day engaging with this to the detriment of basically every other aspect of their lives and their health, that's incredibly disruptive and harmful, right? Now, 
what's the government role? I think the best thing to do is to just carefully monitor and sort of regulate these companies and just say, hey, like there has to sort of be some limitations in some of the techniques that you use. So like, for instance, there's this an interesting actually like public debate about whether an infinite scroll should be allowed because it's probably the most addictive software development that was ever invented. Yeah. And even the guy who invented it, Ozan Raskin, like publicly has said he's had regrets because it's like putting a loaded gun into like a four-year-old's hand. I think that was the metaphor that was commonly used. Because if you think about it from the behavioral perspective that we discussed, right, infinite scroll is a very rapid combination of a behavior, which is a stimulus, right? And you're getting immediate reinforcement. And your brain sort of automatically associates that your behavior is giving you the stimulus, the response that you want. Yeah. And, and you because it's double positive and negative, right? You're you're reducing anxiety of boredom right. and you're getting all this like new novel. novel exactly. Because every time you scroll up, there's more and more novel content yeah. that's brilliantly uploaded, not even by the company, but by the poor users who are like basically are working for them for free. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me. Uh, you know. Yeah. So yeah, there, I think there should be public discussion about like, you know, should there at least be limits on how sort of software is built? And like, do we give large tech companies essentially free reign in terms of how, you know, addictive or engaging some of the software particularly is? Yeah. And I think that's fair game. I'm not, you know, in favor of sort of like super hard restrictions, but I think incentivization, you know, is not a bad thing. So like regulating things like sugar taxes, I think actually are fair game. I think there's good research in other countries that have implemented them. that They have reduced sugar consumption and sugar sweetened beverage consumption. Yeah. There's no reason to think that it's the same thing, you know, with it, very addictive sort of uh, behavioral things you know, making it harder for people to do these things may not be a bad idea. And we already do this, by the way, like online gambling in the US is restricted, yep. right, for the most part compared to other countries, because we decided, you know, this can be highly problematic for some people. Yeah, I mean, typically, I'm fairly shy when you talk about governments mandating, right, you know, regulation from the top down. But I think for this specific case, I think it should definitely be on the table. I think it's literally a novel behavior over the last five, 10 years, and we don't know how it's affecting everyone's brains. Right. Right. We, we could calm down 20, 30 years down the line if you've been raised on an iPhone or an Android phone in your pocket since you're two. Right. What does that look like when that person is 35? Exactly. Yeah, we have no idea. Yeah, right? It is literally like a whole new world. Exactly. So, I, you know, I think short of government, you know, it's fun to speculate about, yeah. you know, what's the right thing to do. But, you know, I, I think individuals to some degree obviously need to take responsibility and say, hey, look, you know, this is the environment and society that we're in. These things are incredibly tempting and addictive. And we have some at least some personal responsibility to take in terms of how do I, you know, make sure I'm not oh, at least overdoing, you know, some yep. of these things, whether that's doing intermittent fasting and dopamine fasting when yep. it comes to, you know, like I said, what's going in through your eyes and ears. By the way, I actually consider intermittent fasting as a behavior that you can do as part of dopamine fasting, yep. right? So if you're already doing intermittent fasting, I think you're actually a great candidate to do dopamine fasting because you've already incorporated that as in terms of your eating, where you're not just impulsively eating whenever you feel, you know, negative emotion, which is how most Americans, in fact, yep. eat. they engage in that emotional eating, but you're saying, okay, I'm doing it within a time restricted window, right? And so, you know, you can do that as part of your dopamine fasting when it comes to food. And I would invite folks who are already doing that if there's other behavior that they want to kind of put within sort of time restricted pleasure, if you want to put it that way, to say, okay, these are great. Like life is, it's important to have pleasure and enjoyment. That's the thing I want to emphasize is that dopamine fasting is not about aestheticism or like the avoidance of pleasure or dopamine. Like, you know, life should be savored and enjoyed. 
within limitations and moderations. The challenge is that in this sort of hyper addictive and hyper tempting society, people don't regulate very well or self-regulate well. And it's hard to self-regulate short of government intervention. And these things are around all the time. So I almost feel like, you know, modern man and woman needs to have structure and people benefit from structure. And when it's not coming externally, we need to sort of internally put these structures on ourselves, which makes total sense, by the way, because the funny thing is, once you start talking about this, people feel like it's controversial. But the moment that you talk about it, when it comes to their kids, they're like, oh, of course, I don't let my kids play unlimited video games 100%. or computer games. Talk to any tech executive in Silicon Valley. All of them have limitations on their screen time with their kids because they're the people who are developing this technology and they know you know, like that this is, you know, they're not, we're not sure the impact of all these things, but we're not going to, you know, treat our kids like guinea pigs and find out. So they, they reasonably restrict it and say, okay, until you've done your homework, you can't play video games. If you are, you're not playing for more than a day, an hour during the day on the weekends. There's no reason that adults, quite frankly, actually should be different, yeah. right? Where we should find what are our limits. Maybe they're more than obviously for kids, but all of us need limits in order to have to thrive and do well as human beings. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious in terms of how you structured and how you came up with this protocol and this idea. Sounds like there's a three main pillars. One, stimulus control to this notion of urge surfing. Right. And then three, this notion around, OK, here's a potential high level structure in yeah. terms of essentially fasting windows from stimulus and then potentially more extended fast weekend right. per month or weekend per quarter and like a week per year. And for me, coming from more as an observer and a follower of the space, it seems like you're really pulling interesting techniques from a broad group of disciplines, right? You have things deriving from CBT, which mm -hmm. is you know clearly been studied in, in a formal perspective. And then like this notion of urge surfing, it seems very much borrowed from meditative practices yeah. where a lot of the great meditation practices talk about being outside of your ego and observing these urges and just perceiving them and letting them come in and out. Yeah. What inspired you to formalize your definition, your protocol? Was it primarily through your you know, professional training as a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. and a psychiatrist and a, and a professor? Or was it pulling and inspired from other more mindfulness practices that are also popular these days? But before you answer that question, let's take a quick break. Hey everyone, I hope your 2020 is starting off strong. To celebrate the start of this new calendar year and this calendar decade, the team at HVMN is here to support your new or existing goals. We're offering 25% off HVMN's performance supplements all month long in January. Our four nootropic blends each target specific areas of the body and brain. Not getting enough omega-3 fatty acids in your diet? Try Arcado. It's a daily omega-3 health kit. Aiming to get better sleep this year? Try Yawn, our non-habit-forming sleep aid, and that could help make every night your best night's sleep. Sprint is our acute nootropic, and it's a great coffee alternative. And Rise, our mainstay nootropic, supports long-term cognitive resilience. Until January 31st, 2020, save 25% and stock up for the year ahead. Just click on the link in the description or visit www.hvmn.com pod. Now, back to the program. Yeah, so the interesting thing about mindfulness is um, it's increasingly become incorporated into evidence-based behavioral treatments. So not only do I use CBT, but the main actually psychotherapeutic orientation that I teach and use is actually called ACT. It's Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So actually, like right now at UCSF, I'm training the fourth year psychiatry residents in using ACT to diagnose and treat psychiatric conditions. 
and ACT is essentially a mindfulness-based therapy. So it shares the behavioral component of CBT. So it uses the same stimulus control, same exposure and response prevention stuff that we talked about, but it also incorporates other things like mindfulness and values as part of the intervention. So I think mindfulness has really become rolled into as one of many sort of techniques that's used in psychotherapy and sort of almost become mainstream, just as it's become mainstreamed in society with formal meditation and yoga and other sort of mindfulness-oriented practices. So I think actually a lot of mental health clinicians do incorporate mindfulness and urge surfing is just like one form or instantiation of it, whether it's used in CBT or ACT. But the reason that I particularly wanted to popularize dopamine fast, I literally in August, actually, there's, I think there's an old tweet out there where I was like, I'm going to make this go viral. And I kind of created a whole campaign in order to do so, where the reason is because unfortunately, in modern society, even though recently we have mental health parity laws in terms of mental health being reimbursed, equal to the treatment of physical conditions. In reality, mental health is not very accessible, right? Most mental health practitioners don't accept insurance because insurance reimburses clinicians, unfortunately, very poorly for it. There's usually sometimes even separate insurance for mental health. It's not treated, quite frankly, the same way. It's hard to find a good quality clinician. There's so many structural barriers for people to get good mental health treatment that it's, it's very easy for me to say, oh, okay, okay, you're dealing with this issue, go seek therapy. There's a lot of stigma, unfortunately, to doing that. That's why in my practice, it's not about necessarily treating conditions. It is a lot more about health and performance optimization. But I also recognize that, yeah, a lot of people just don't have the time or the energy or the money, quite frankly, to engage in therapy. So I was like, let me take some of these techniques that if someone has sort of a subclinical addiction where it may not warrant full therapy or if they can't access it, let me write it up in articles and blog posts and tweets that can at least get some of this information out to the public. And how do you make that like fun, interesting, engaging for consumers? You call it dopamine fasting, um, which was both a blessing and a burden, by the way, because it it obviously helped popularize it. But the media has been like absolutely terrible about it. Because the New York Times, by the way, it was a total hit piece, that (laughs) article. I actually gave the, the reporter like pages of interview material about the science and whatever. She discarded all of it and just took a random guy who does his own version of dopamine fasting, which is like not based on anything that we talked about. It's like pure denial of anything. Yeah, that's what I wanted to explore a little bit, like kind of the funniness around like people talking about dopamine fasting, meaning oh, I'm like literally going to not talk to people and like not have any, any stimulus for like a month or a week yeah. at a time. Like I'm not going to engage in conversation. Like I can't talk to you. Like I'm dopamine right. fasting right now. Well, that's how it got popular, right? A woman on Twitter said that that guy um, came up to she came up to him and wanted to talk to him. And he's like, I can't talk to you. I'm dopamine fasting. <laughs> and I was like, what a joke. I was like, obviously, he didn't like read my protocol. In fact, in literally my protocol, I, I said, well, what do you do when you're dopamine fasting? You should do pro-social things. You should spend quality time with people. Yeah. You should engage in health behaviors. No doctor in their right mind would tell people like don't socialize right. or don't exercise. Right. So that guy was just doing his, his own thing. And I think it kind of went viral because it was funny. Right. And unfortunately, like, you know, people like to make fun of tech bros, whatever that is in Silicon Valley. And so the the New York Times writer literally wrote a hit piece that was t- to mock essentially that guy and tech bros. Yeah. And it wasn't to like disseminate it. So it was funny, actually, another journalist, Mick Wright, who wrote a better like science informed piece on dopamine fasting, literally tweeted and said, it was very clear that the intention of the writer, and this is coming from a fellow journalist, 
was to mock the subjects of the piece, right? So it's unfortunate, but you know, it's it's actually interesting to me because we've been talking about how like a lot of these apps and technologies are designed to be addictive and the media is exactly the same way, right? Unfortunately, a lot of the media is sensationalist clickbait, right? And it's reinforced by the fact that the way that their outcomes are measured are is through clicks, yep. right? And advertising dollars. And so I think the writer and the New York Times kind of published the piece knowing that it's inaccurate to be sensationalistic. Yep. And they're like, this is going to blow up because look how ridiculous, you know, like these people are acting. And oh, it's like another example of Silicon Valley excess and tech bro, which is, by the way, I found actually very offensive because I was like, I see both men and women in my private practice. Addiction is not a gendered thing. It yeah. was never a tech bro thing in the first place, but they made it into such, right? And I've been very like public about you know that that's that's another inaccuracy. Yeah. Not only the technique is wrong, but they're they're making it into a gender thing, even when it wasn't. But that's exactly why we need dopamine fasting, um, which is weird and it comes full circle because the media is trying to constantly steal your attention by, you know, making you click on sensationalist nonsense, yeah. right? And the irony of the whole thing is, you know, I I probably got interviewed by like dozens of outlets: New York Times, ABC, BBC. And I think it's been 12 countries now, which is amazing in terms of just like the public reach. The media outlet that actually did the best job of it was a fashion magazine. It was like L magazine. So I told the reporter, I was like, please, if you do this piece, just like make sure you cover the actual science. You know, like I'm going to share all you know the studies with you. I'll talk the, the whole protocol and the logic behind it. And they did a phenomenal piece. And it's, it's kind of funny to me because, you know, you trust mainstream, well-established media pieces like the New York Times, the BBC, because they have a history of credibility. I think, unfortunately, I hate to say it because there really are good journalists and, you know, there are good pieces that still come out of those journals. I don't want to knock them. Yeah. But I, I think we've gotten to, unfortunately, a point in our society's history where the prestige of the institution is no longer a validation of the credibility. There are great pieces that come out in the New York Times that I love and share. And quite frankly, there's garbage that comes out. And the dopamine fasting article is unfortunately one of them. We should have known because it was in the style section, by the way. It wasn't in like the science section of the New York Times, which tells you all you need to know about that. But yeah, I think that basically means that consumers need to be discerning, right? Just as we are discerning about what we put in our mouths, you can't just trust that any sort of packaged food is good. You got to like read the label, right? Yeah. You got to look at the ingredients. You got to read the nutrition label. You got to use your common sense. And it's the same thing with media. Right. Like we got to first ask, like, what's the intention of the author? The funny thing is when I actually, you know, told this whole story to another professor colleague of mine at UCSF, he was like, who wrote the piece in the New York Times? And I mentioned the name of the author. And he was like, oh, yeah, no wonder. I was like, she's, he was like, do you know, she wrote the hit piece on Jordan Peterson as well. Yep. I was like, no, I didn't know that. He's like, yeah, you should have done your homework before you talked to her. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, OK, I guess that was my fault because I didn't do my research and knew that she basically had an axe to grind against the patriarchy, you know, whatever that is to her, and uh, was going to write a negative piece essentially out there. So I encourage consumers to be really discerning. Obviously, it is beneficial to be informed of what's going on in the world and the news. But a lot of it is not only unfortunately fake news, as we see saw with the New York Times, but stuff that's literally written to, you know, stimulate and capture your attention. One of the other pieces, by the way, on dopamine fasting was like, dopamine fasting, something, something, our tech bros full of shit, it was literally the headline of the article. The rest of the article was actually not bad. They interviewed a bunch of neuroscientists yeah. that actually were like, yeah, there's some, you know, the neuroscience of this actually sort of like makes sense, blah, yeah. blah, blah. 
and I, I talked to the writer and I was like, the piece was fine, but why did you write that headline? He's like, I didn't. I don't choose headline. Yeah, they don't choose headlines. They're like the my editor actually yeah. made us, you know, pick this obnoxious art because it's <laughs> going to get more clicks, yeah. right? And so if you know now that that's what the media is doing, right? It's trying to steal your attention in this war for you for your attention. We should be very selective in terms of what we read, and it shouldn't just be based on the basis of the journal. It should be like, okay, does this author seem credible? Maybe I'll skim it a little bit. You know, uh, do they actually do primary research? That's the other interesting thing I learned about the media. A lot of media actually doesn't even when they wrote about dopamine fasting, they didn't even interview me for the piece. Yeah, they, they were actually copy and paste from other media articles who copy and pasted from other media articles. And so it almost creates this game of telephone yeah. where they just assume, oh, okay, it was in the BBC and the New York Times, so it must be true. And that's what dopamine fasting is. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for that <laughs> journey there because I think I saw a lot of a similar pattern with intermittent fasting right? and tech bros starving themselves exactly, and causing eating disorders right. like about three years ago. And I think a lot of the similar realizations around how the media works what are the incentives of the journalist? Uh, it really opens your eyes on it. And I think for perhaps folks that are listening, it's like, oh, like, do we really want to talk about fake news and real news? Like, are we really playing into that? And I think from my experience, sounds like from your experience, this is not a, like political fake news, real news. It's literally, there seems to be a war of attention. Right. And you need to understand that almost each individual writer is incentivized to acquire influence and one of the easiest ways to do that is write the most interesting thought-provoking controversial thing ever absolutely right because the new york times now has to compete with yourself who can write a linkedin post or a medium post and right. get you know hundreds of thousands of views or a blogger who can get hundreds millions of views and now there's a war for which voice which platform gets heard yeah i think it's an unprecedented time for journalism and unprecedented time for information dissemination. So I think, I, I don't think we've figured out how this plays out. I think you yeah. talk a lot about just popular media today when you have more and more people looking at podcasts, right? Like podcasts, these long form conversations where we mm -hmm. can spend an hour, 90 minutes talking about the actual substance and the details and have the sources. They're really growing in popularity, right? Yeah. Like the TV networks, the viewership counts are much lower than like a Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, Joe Rogan is literally more influential than your ABC News. Yeah. And I think the broader society is just starting to realize that. I think professional journalists are just starting to realize that these voices and I think that there's like the micro competing factor. Okay, I got to just like get more views now. But I think there will be some sort of uh, reckoning around, okay, what is professional journalism? What right. are our principles? Are we going to be more agenda driven? Like, okay, we're going to talk about, we're going to kind of troll the tech bros on dopamine fasting right. or intermittent fasting. And that will be interesting. Or do we actually do primary research and talk to the sources before yeah. developing the story? And I think there's been articulation with, you know, different podcast folks or different writers saying that media seems to have moved more in that direction, especially in recent years. Yeah. The unfortunate thing, too, is also the weaponization of science and scientists yeah. in terms of kind of manipulating their expertise. So it actually really made me sad when I saw the whole Jack Dorsey thing about yeah. intermittent fasting, right? And it's like, is he promoting disordered eating? And I was like, look, if you've been a psychologist and you've been working with disordered eating, that is not disordered eating. Yeah. What I would consider the standard American diet is disordered eating, yeah. as you talk about, yeah. right? Like, why are you should be why are you grazing twenty four seven? That's yeah. disordered. That's never the way that we sort of ate ancestrally, right? And if someone's making a clear, conscious choice to, you know, engage in time restricted eating, 
and it's not in a way that's having a deleterious effect on their health, that's it's kind of ridiculous to kind of slander that person. What's interesting, I'll tell you sort of behind the scenes, because I'm a scientist and a professor, journalists reach out to me. And so they're, they're really like, do you have folks in your private practice that do intermittent fasting? And I'm like, yeah. It's like, has there been any harm that's been done? Like, have they taken it too far? And I could tell that they want that soundbite yeah. to have a professor at the medical school say, yeah, I have clients that are abusing it and taking it too far. And look how dangerous it is. And I was yeah. like, I've never had a, at least in my experience, I can't speak for the rest of it, but I've never had a client that had a bad experience with intermittent fasting. And then the journalist was like super disappointed because I didn't give him the soundbite that he was that he was looking for. Yeah, right? on the red meat. Exactly. Right. I saw this turn against dopamine fasting, too, where because dopamine fasting is is the term that I sort of use because it needed a nice consumer label to make yeah. it sexy to say, like, OK, we're using sort of CBT techniques for impulse control disorders is not like how the public yeah. consume things. If you would actually ask professors about that, because that's the common term in academia, most experts would say, yes, CBT is an extremely valid treatment for the impulse control disorders. Right. What they would do is they would go to a professor and they'd be like, what do you think about dopamine fasting? And they'd be like, I've never heard of dopamine fasting. And they're like, dopamine fasting is where you avoid all dopamine and pleasure forever. And they're like, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. And they're like, great, let's print it. And I was just <laughs> like, that's that's ridiculous because you've essentially fed something into the mind of the professor, right. gotten the quote that you wanted, and then you ran with it. And then you're like, oh, look at this prestigious MD, PhD from the Yale School of Medicine who said it's nonsense. But I was right. like, they don't even know what it is. This actually happened. Um, and I went, I went on this professor's Twitter and he's like, he literally talked about the experience afterwards. He's like a journalist. Uh, I found out about dopamine fasting for the first time today. And I was like, that's hilarious because you knocked something that you actually had no and you're yeah, it as a didn't world do any on. research on. Yeah. Right. And I was like, the, what the journalist should have done if they're responsible, be like, oh, you haven't heard of it. Here's the article. Here's the protocol. Review it and then give me your expert opinion on it. Yeah. But they're like, I, I have a deadline that I need to quote in 15 minutes. Yeah. So here's I'll do that. And I actually think that's the worst part of it when it comes to the general public is there's a bunch of articles that will come out and they'll interview neuroscientists, physicians, psychologists who seem very credible. They're like esteemed professors. But because of the way that they acquired those quotes, either out of context or by sort of manipulating the interviewers, they'll get the stance that they want. They'll be like, oh, yeah, intermittent fasting is an eating disorder. Dopamine fasting is scientifically inaccurate or whatever their stance is. And they'll abuse sort of the experts credentials in order to promote that. Yep. And and the you know the public doesn't know better because they're like well, this guy's an MD PhD telling me that this is nonsense. They know better than I do. Yeah. But they don't see sort of the machinations that are happening behind closed doors. And by the way, I'm like the least conspiracy like theorist person ever. This is literally just from my own unfortunate experiences in dealing with the media. Yeah. And again, I just like the definition of journalism in perhaps in the dictionary is that you talk to primary sources before telling the story. Exactly. And I think we all sense this, not just like with our personal experiences, but with potentially within political media and broader commentary that if the world is moving towards the fact when journalists want to tell a story and they're going to just cherry pick quotes to get that story. That's a very interesting precipice to ask people to assess, because I think there's an incredible value of having trusted institutional journalistic Absolutely. resources, right? Like you and I are not going to have the time to understand Iran policy or healthcare policy or this political party versus that political party. You like you just can't expect everyone to be world expert on everything. Right. So that to me is something that is will be interesting for our society to really, really figure out over the coming years. How do you I think what you're saying, which is like 
understand the primary sources, kind of doubt the intent of the writer. But can you really ask everyone to do that yeah. in their very busy lives? It, it is that's going to be challenging. For sure. I mean, I guess that's the nice thing when you're trained as a scientist. Our, our sort of de facto thing is the null hypothesis. You're, you're yeah. a skeptic, right? You're like, I don't believe it until I see the evidence. Yeah. And I just don't also like accept it for face value. Like we'll read through studies and we'll look at the methodology and was like, was this study done properly that, you know, it came to this conclusion or not? That is a hard thing to do. I think for a lot of people, I'm not expecting everyone to like have, uh, you know, the same amount of scientific literacy as a scientist. But I do think like asking the right questions and like looking at primary sources, just it pass the sniff test. Like, like, you know, that's what I was saying. A colleague of mine was like, he just knew from who wrote the article that it was like, you know, yeah. the people have a history of sort of putting out stuff. And it was funny, too, when we were talking earlier about dopamine fasting, like I'm using a lot of like scientific jargon when I'm talking about stimulus control and exposure and response prevention. But if we kind of simplify it and we're just like, OK, yeah, if you're having a problem like engaging in willpower to deal with an addiction, making it hard to engage in the addiction and practicing impulse control when you're feeling the urge to engage in the addiction is kind of common sense. And if, you know, some of these things, I think, you know, you can use a little bit of your common sense and be like, yeah, that seems pretty reasonable yeah, to me. Yeah, that seems reasonable, yeah. You know, and, um, and, you know, ultimately, you can try stuff for yourself, too. And just like, that's the ultimate sniff test is yeah. like, the nice thing about behavioral interventions, they have very little side effects. We're not talking about pharmacological treatments here, where, look, if you try it, and you're like, okay, I'm able to cut down on engaging in this addiction from seven hours to three hours, and that's a net benefit to my life, great. If it doesn't work for you because it's hard or it doesn't fit into your schedule, then ultimately it doesn't matter what the research says. It's not a great intervention for you. So, you know, that's that's what I would encourage people, you know, to think about in and of itself is just like, is this practical, applicable and beneficial to my life? Yeah, well said. And hopefully, you know, this might be optimistic or naive of me, but hopefully I think people get and understand what is delivering them real value. And hopefully if institutions keep doing bad practices that kind of reputation erodes and hopefully there's more of a gravitation towards long-form conversation or new platforms that try to be much more objective or try to be much more journalistic right like right. i think one of the funny things that i hear is when journalists talk about you know who elected you or who chose you to be able to like talk about these topics and it's like why isn't someone asking the same question? Who elected you to be the journalist? Who elected you to be the tastemaker on right, any right. specific subject? And it's just like, hopefully we don't need to go into a, you know, he said, she said, like, who's smarter debate. But I think the end result, I think where we're going to get to is that hopefully each individual gets smarter and much more attuned to what they choose to trust. And hopefully that's from a more research perspective than something that's like carte blanche from existing, yeah. you know, templates. Yeah. And I think the nice thing too is, look, all sort of behavioral phenomenon is subject to trends. But I do think the ones that are more effective tend to have natural staying power through almost like a natural selection process, right? So keto is super hot right now. I was on the podcast in 2017 talking about my keto related company when that consumer trend was just taking off. Yeah. But it's not new, right? It's sort of a reformulation of Atkins. And even going back, there's I think there's a jam article from the 1960s that talk about yeah. essentially like lower carb versions. And there's even probably precedent before that. It gets renamed, right, in different forms. There's new influencers that sort of popularize it. And it gets updated and improved over time. Where like maybe now like 
There's a more hyper carnivorous version of keto that's kind of popular now done in conjunction with intermittent fasting. And you see this sort of evolution that happens over time. But the fact this is almost like what Taleb talks about in terms of like the Lindy effect, right? I was just going to reference that. Yeah. Yeah. So stuff that tends to stick around longer term has a, at least a higher probability of having some validity over time. And it's the same thing. It's like, you know, CBT, at least in, you know, the psychological community has been around at least for the 60s and 70s. It's dominated essentially other psychotherapeutic orientations where, you know, back in the 60s, a more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic sort of therapy that was a lot more childhood focused, you know, dynamic focused was popular. And it's essentially the behavioral therapies have trumped that. Now, we can argue whether that's a good or bad thing, but it's at least a, a useful signal, I think, to the public about, OK, stuff that tends to stick around. Uh, maybe there's a validity or a benefit to it. And whether it's going to be called dopamine fasting, whether it's going to be called digital detox, whether it's going to be called, you know, uh, addiction treatments, you know, I have no doubt that in some form or another, the idea that we need to have structure and control over things that are particularly addictive will absolutely last the litmus test of time. Yep. And increasingly, we become more and more important over time because we're just going to have high speed everything everywhere i agree with that so i want to move on to another hashtag concept that you've also been recently popularizing i know dopamine fasting hashtag is right. one and then i also see that you reference and talk a lot about tonic masculinity right. i presume as antithesis to toxic masculinity which is i guess a much broader much more commonplace hashtag that people talk a lot about can you define tonic masculinity what is it reacting towards obviously I, I presume it's reacting towards this notion of toxic masculinity right. what is the problem what are you trying to solve so obviously i think a lot of people have heard the sort of the toxic masculinity uh, phenomenon it was particularly pushed interestingly by certain organizations one there was a, the commercial by gillette which was trying to take advantage of it and talking about like you know the abusiveness of of men in order to sell razors, which is yeah. I was like, do you know who your audience is? <laughs> so it was a little bizarre yeah. um, and manipulative. But the worst of it to me was actually when the American Psychological Association, which a lot of obviously colleagues of mine are, are members of in the field, you know, put out their sort of a, I don't know if it was guidelines or, or sort of a directive about, you know, certain inherent traits of masculinity being toxic. Right. And I think most of the public is familiar with sort of toxic masculinity in reference to sort of the Me Too movement in terms of, you know, the unfortunate amount of sexual harassment, bias and other problems in the society that have unfortunately and tragically been underappreciated and under addressed. Those are obviously really important issues. And I, I don't think there's anyone who sort of doubts the importance of those things. And I, I, I want to lend a lot of credence to that because you know, regardless of background, abuse, harassment, all of that, you know, we need to improve on as a society. But I think the unfortunate thing is you take a legitimate issue and you layer on the politics on top of that and you call it toxic masculinity. And that in turn inherently has a implication or assumption that there's something inherent about masculinity that's toxic. And the message, I think, especially to like boys and young men, there's something wrong with you, essentially, or you have these evil tendencies that if you don't watch or check, you know, is 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 harmful inherently to other people and to society. And so the APA would actually, in their doctrines or guidelines, were saying that like certain traits like stoicism or competitiveness or aggression are inherently evil. 
And I was like, that, first of all, it's not like an accurate representation of what stoicism is. It's not emotional suppression. Stoicism right. is obviously an ancient Greek philosophy. It's, like, it's a lot more about, you know, using a philosophical approach to deal with life suffering. That's actually useful. Competitiveness is not a bad thing at all. We live in a society that is based on dominance hierarchies. And obviously, we don't want to have a bad sportsmanship kind of competitiveness where you're like mean or cruel or breaking rules. Nobody wants that. But we should absolutely teach boys and young men to compete. There's some progress, right? You have to have progress. You need to have some competition. Exactly. And we have natural, you know, drive for aggression and power. Anyone with ambition will do that. But it's about how do you channel and express that mm -hmm. in a healthy way, right? If you're doing that aggression in sports in a way that's within the boundaries of the sport and within the rules, that is a positive sublimated channel for that. But to sort of uh, Im imply that it's intrinsically evil or that men are intrinsically bad, I think is incredibly harmful to society and to the future generations of men. And so the irony is my whole position is there's actually no such thing as toxic masculinity. There are toxic behaviors that are conducted by both men and women that we should absolutely not condone and we should absolutely punish. But it's not something inherent about masculinity. And in fact, I make the argument that masculinity and femininity is inherently tonic or healing or positive. And that's what the meaning of the hashtag is. Tonic masculinity means that masculinity is good. It should be celebrated. We shouldn't be ashamed of being a man because a lot of the traits that are intrinsically and cross-culturally associated with masculinity are positive and have done tremendously you know, good things for society. Strength, for instance, is a masculine virtue and is literally important for building everything that we see around us today and is should be celebrated. You know, honor and loyalty that we have or like going back thousands of years to myth and oral tradition has always been celebrated as a masculine virtue in terms of caring for one another. And even when you do have greater strength and power that you use that benevolent benevolently and responsibly, courage is a masculine virtue, right? Like how do we you know, go off to war, protect loved ones without having courage and overcoming sort of our fears. And finally, like things like mastery, like competence and being good at what you do is important for running civilization. So, so does that mean that women can't be courageous? Oh, they absolutely mastery? can. So this is not necessarily biological sex related. This is just and when you're using masculinity and femininity, these are more of traditional groups of classification of these traits. I think they're traditional cross-cultural associations of masculinity. You can you can say that they're socio-culturally derived. I don't think it's useful to necessarily try to get into a debate of how much is it biological, how much is it socio-cultural. Yeah. I mean, obviously, strength does have biological and physiological basis. That's probably unquestionable. Yeah. Some of the other traits may be more culturally influenced. I think that's fair. And yet, the reality is that masculinity and femininity are inherent in both sexes, mm -hmm. right? Even as a man, and you can actually like there's questionnaires that you can take that will tell you your your percentile of masculinity and femininity. I think it's actually important for men to be in touch with their feminine side to some degree. And same thing with women should actually be in touch with some of traditionally masculine qualities. Yep. It's just about figuring out, you know, the right sort of balance of that for each sort of individual and how productive it, that is in their lives. Yeah. But the greater point is to just essentially to not sort of slander masculinity as being inherently evil and to shy boys away from being in touch with those virtues. And so what the hashtag has done is essentially, you know, on Twitter, I and other people will use the hashtag to post videos 
showing men being men, essentially engaging in virtuous, pro-social, positive behavior so that people don't go out there and think that men are inherently evil and just do bad. I think the media and other things, it's been so negative lately about men, perhaps as sort of like a, you know, counteracting all, yeah. a lot of the bad behavior that has happened, which you can argue maybe it's justified, but I think it's been excessive in almost like a pent up punishment that's happened. It's like, it's like a pendulum swing, right? You, you overcorrect. And there's exactly. Like an overcorrection. Yeah. But the unfortunate thing is like, look, uh, you know, it's bad behavior is obviously done by a disproportionate minority of folks, right? And you can't slander all men for the sins of a few just the same thing with women like you know there's obviously radical misandrists who are man-hating and they're like the antonym to you know some of the you know guys that engage in bad behavior but you know most men are pretty realistic and they're like ah you're a you know radical feminist man-hater you're not representative of all women that's your individual point of view yeah you know you're the exception but unfortunately i think we don't have that point of view a lot of at least the mainstream media doesn't around men and so I think it's been important to, you know, provide that as an antidote to the toxic media narrative, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting. I'm just like stepping back and just getting a sense of the two broad social cultural debates happening right now. I think from dopamine fasting, it's pretty interesting to see that in terms of objective life quality, we have more access to resources than ever, but happiness mm-hmm. rates are like trending yeah. downwards and then mental health issues and addictive behaviors are growing quite aggressively so it sounds like that has been an area that you focused on and in terms of the masculinity argument i think gender roles have been changing a lot i mean yeah. just literally within our generation that women are you know close to full participation in the workforce where you know women are going to colleges more than men at this yeah. point and and that's wasn't the case our yeah. parents generation are these big social changes what gravitated you towards trying to address them? I mean, how would you select these as causes for you to yeah. fly your banner? I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting that like if you just step back, like you're hitting a couple timely social changes. Yeah, I'm not sure it was um, conscious or intentional. I think honestly, like a, a reaction to the problems that I would see in the world, right? So just as dopamine fasting was kind of a reaction to just seeing the unfortunate rise of behavioral addictions from both my private practice, but also just like talking to people in the real world and like how addicted everyone is to something. Right. And it's the same thing with tonic masculinity. Like I'm, I'm not a gender theorist, not my background. Obviously psychology is a lot of, you know, literature, you know, on these kind of things. And you do things like couples therapy that is important in terms of helping people function better in relationships. But, you know, I would just see that there's almost like a distrust now between the sexes that I actually think is probably more overhyped thanks to the media and all this like me too slash toxic masculinity narrative than there actually is in the real world. Like I think like if you talk to most women, they obviously appreciate men and same thing. Men appreciate women and the equal opportunity that that is now afforded them, which is fantastic. And we should be celebrating that. Yeah. You know, my, I had a working mom and, you know, it's these are all like these are great things. We made a lot of progress, but I think there's been a lot of deep seated distrust that's been sowed that has driven, I think, a lot of people apart. And it's really the extreme ends that are the most vocal that I think are kind of promoting this distrust. And I think it is kind of harmful as a result of that. And I think I feel at least a social responsibility to address these things and use sort of my platform publicly increasingly to increase them. Because what I actually see as the deeper problem is that in traditional societies, especially like young boys and young men, 
had to sort of be initiated into adulthood ritualistically oftentimes yeah. right so we know in certain cultures you have like a bar mitzvah or a quinceanera or like if we're both boys and girls by the way to sort of formalize the ritual introduction as an adult into the community and oftentimes this is done by older members of the community it could be uncles could be friends could be coaches could be other kind of folks that mentor people mm -hmm. and it's not just the parents that are raising the kids but it's literally it takes a village as they say yep. in a nuclear family-oriented society like the united states a lot of people aren't in touch with their relatives parents are often divorced in modern society even if your parents are around they're more married to their corporate job than they are to you yeah. so as robert bly said you know you um as when you're doing your dad gets home you get more of his temper than you get his temperament because you know people are exhausted and tired and angry from a long day of work yeah and so i think there's literally a lack of positive male role models in modern society especially father figures and i think people are desperately thirsty for them and that's actually my whole theory for the rise of sort of influencers nowadays is that there's an incredible distrust of institutions as we've talked about like you don't trust the media anymore and i i've always trusted the media but it, my recent experience is like maybe i shouldn't so much yeah, right yeah, yeah. for good reason and when there is a distrust of institutions i think people gravitate towards trusting individuals more because like i can't trust these organizations but there's at least some people i can trust and so you see the rise of jordan peterson who from a deeply psychological perspective plays a father figure right he's the wise father like a lot of people wish that they had right you look he's at the rise to clean your room who tells you to clean your room same thing with marie kondo by yeah. the way right the other huge influencer of 2019 yeah tell people to clean their room and throw away stuff that doesn't spark joy which to me is hilarious because you think about it you have a mother and a father figure telling america adults in america to clean their rooms right how <laughs> paternalistic and maternalistic is that yeah right but that tells me something that there's something symptomatic about that that grown adults maybe haven't fully matured into their adulthood and they're seeking that which they're lacking yep and they're getting that from influencers it's the same thing joe rogan number one podcast in the country he's like the crazy uncle everyone wishes that they had right yeah. he essentially provides continuing education to males in america where at first it started out with a lot of like mma and comedians but now he brings on political figures elon scientists, musk scientists yeah it's great where a lot of these folks would not go listen to a science podcast but they'll listen to joe rogan and yeah. they'll be like oh let me listen to ronda patrick talk about some stuff that i would never ever read on my own right, right. and then the same thing david goggins highly influential you know like uh, former very navy warrior seal. archetype yeah. navy seal is like the tough coach that people had and like a lot of people aren't disciplined so i kind of have a pet theory that the thing that people lack the most in their lives that's the influencers that they typically like yeah. if you lack discipline you love david goggins because he's the guy who's like yelling at you to go out there four in the morning or jocko willinick yeah to go do that right if you lack sort of a strong father figure then you gravitate towards jordan peterson if you didn't have like a external you know uncle figure then you like guys like joe rogan yeah and so I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it's unfortunate that people didn't get it from their primary sort of families and communities, but it is what it is. It's the evolution of culture. It's the evolution of culture. I, mean, I think just bouncing off of that, my original thinking around this is thinking that as organized religion has dissipated in exactly. America, the influencer is kind of the pastor that's mm -hmm. reassuring them. But I think you have a nicer, more specific articulation. There's the father, the uncle, the coach, which I think the pastor is like some amalgamation of those mm -hmm. things but perhaps there's a role for a pastor who's just like a moral ethical 
coach that tells you this is right, this is wrong. Right. I think again, in individual America, there's as long as you're not doing something illegal, like no one's really <laughs> judging you, right? And perhaps right. there is some value for a father figure or a pastor to say, okay, even though this is not explicitly illegal mm -hmm. to do XYZ, right. perhaps we should have self-discipline to do ABC instead. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's actually a great analogy because if you look at, for instance, Indian culture, they've had a guru system for thousands of years, right? Well, people will study under a guru, whether it's at an ashram or a yogi or um, you know, some other tradition and through sort of a spiritual context will provide them with sort of lessons or virtues about how do you live a, a well-lived life, yeah. right? I don't think the United States has had as much of uh, that tradition. It has been traditionally through Christian-based sort of church system. But yeah, in the mm -hmm. rise of sort of like the millennial generation, especially Gen Z, you're seeing the dissipation of that. But I think the primary needs, the satisfactions have not gone, gone away. I think most people do need some sort of system or code to live there in life. They do benefit from some sort of mentors or leadership that give them guidance and direction. And whether they do that with a religious context and other contexts, right, whether it's through influencers or schools or mentors, they need those satisfactions met. Because if they don't, then they default to the amnesia and anesthesia that I talked about because they're not getting those sort of needs met. So that's why I actually don't think social media is inherently evil. These are just tools, right? And the platforms themselves obviously want you to engage with them as much as possible because that drives engagement and eyeballs. But if you can practice in sufficient self-control where I'm going to be like, I'm going to use this as a tool. I'm going to try to extract the positive benefits out of it. And I'm trying to leave all the garbage behind, right? Because there is a lot of garbage also on social media. But I can pick you know, the good content, the right influencers that I get benefit from, that I get learning from, and may actually fulfill some of those satisfactions, right? The reason that I sort of warmed up to this, the influencer model is because it's been interesting to hear sort of some of the stories from folks like Jordan, where, you know, people will come up to him on the street and be like, tell about their terrible lives, how they were frittering it away on addictions or wasting time, not progressing at school, and living crying. with parents. They're like, you changed my life. Yeah, that you know, you changed your life. I've actually had this experience too. Like every time I want to quit Twitter, I'll randomly get a DM from someone and be like, your content's great. You, you helped help turn my life around. I'm like, oh man, I can't quit now. Yeah. Because yeah, there's some people out there who are like literally in other countries that I would never even be able to help in private practice yeah. that you can reach with a broad stroke. Now, obviously I think there's a tremendous responsibility because gurus can obviously, you know, go the wrong way with, you know, power comes corruption. Yep. But I think the people who are particularly authentic, and they have a genuine mission to help people and to use their platform and their influence and power to spread a positive message to, you know, share credible science to teach people better ways of living. People are naturally going to gravitate towards those folks. And those people will have long standing selling power that's beyond making a buck. And so I think there's a big positive role. And I think it's both our responsibility as consumers to find good folks to follow and learn from and contribute and share with. And it's, that's the nice thing. It's not just a one way street anymore. That's how I actually like even learn on social media is like I read through comments or I read through Twitter and I get other people's takes, not just the person who wrote the article. Yeah. Right. And we have there's a lot more dialogue than I think there ever was. So that's another positive of social media. But also the people at the top who are the influencers, the thought leaders like yourself, have a social responsibility to make sure that they're, you know, doing the best that they can. Yeah, it's really cool because I think when we talked about the Lindy effect and 
this lack of potential fatherhood or male role models. I think that fits quite nicely to this tonic masculine notion and these emerging influencers, this notion around not having so much exposure to these digital casinos in our inner pockets 24 right. seven, anything around the corner that you sense is in that same analogy. Cause I think that like one idea that I've been thinking a lot about is this notion that we've put ourselves into a human zoo. Right, you look at yeah. you look at animals in the zoo, especially after you go into the wild on a safari. You see like wild animals, and you go into a zoo. These zoo animals are like depressed. Like you read about stories right. about orcas at Sea World, their fins aren't straight. Like great white sharks can't survive within an aquarium for more than four weeks because of some. No one really knows why, but I imagine yeah. it's because they're just not in an environment that's normal for them. And you look at how we live today as humans: is that we have one box, which is our apartment. You probably have a box that's your office and maybe you have a box that's your like gym yeah. and you probably spend 23 out of the 24 hours in those boxes and in a like in smaller boxes you're commuting those three boxes yeah and then the food right it's getting delivered to you in like a nice little package thing you get fed like a zoo animal yeah and that has got me thinking how do i structure my lifestyle in a way that more matches what our ancestors could have lived mm -hmm. like right have a little bit of intermittent fasting, dopamine fasting is, is interesting. Maybe work out more physical activity throughout the day as opposed to one hour, three times a week at the gym. Yeah. So that's something that I've been noodling around in terms of the Lindy effect and seeing what modernity has changed literally in the last couple of decades of our existence. Right. Anything else that's like sparking your attention? Because it sounds like you have a, quite a knack here, choosing a couple <laughs> interesting spots. Curious if you have any instincts around what's kind of scratching you that that's like putting you off in a, in a in a wrong way i have a pretty wide breadth of interests yeah. you know my primary sort of training and specialty is obviously psychology and behavioral medicine but you know i've been on this podcast talking about nutrition yeah the thing is the reason i think it they're actually not so disparate is that they're all around actually the same common theme which is how do i be as healthy happy and flourishing as possible and i actually think like if you're you know in the mental health field how can you not focus on nutrition. It's a key part of health and mental well-being. And increasingly, there actually are studies on like using ketogenic diets and being in the state of ketosis for as depression. an anxiolytic yeah. thing, yeah. right? And for, you know, regulation of mood disorders like depression, um, certainly for in terms of cognitive decline and dementia and Alzheimer's is some promising, you know, emerging research. I don't, it's not quite definitive yet. But so, you know, in my private practice, I, I focus on not only on diet, but exercise, physical activity on intimacy like relationships is actually you know really critical on sleep which is obviously critical for health um, and on focus and focus being dopamine fasting yeah. as like one of the techniques that help people you know maintain and sustain their attention so they're all actually interrelated right which is these are disparate practices but i would consider them foundational practices or almost like keystone habits to a well-lived and healthy life I'm like you in the sense that I am a fan of studying sort of ancestral like diets and other things in terms of some of these things we don't have all the answers for. Nutrition being a great example, like even Darius Mozafarin, who's a dean of nutrition at Tufts, says we only know 40% of what we need to know about nutrition. Yeah. And all the epidemiological research is completely flawed. So given that's the state of the research, then we probably should go back and look at ancestral diets because at least that's probably at least the best directional indication of what we should eat that we have the challenge is i think 
we can't go completely back, yeah. right? Like, as you said, we're going to be living, we do live in these artificial light boxes and we're not going to be going and sleeping outside and waking up necessarily with the sunlight and going to sleep when the sun sets, you know, anymore. So I think it's a balancing act of like, certainly I think our primary, you know, needs and drivers, we should try to maybe as closely approximate within reason as we can, right? I've even said this, for instance, about relationships where positive and downside of social media is allows us to maintain a much broader network than we ever could. Like you can keep in touch with your high school friends. You like never probably would have pre-Facebook, yeah. right? Is that a good or bad thing? It could be good, certainly in terms of rekindling relationships. But at least from my study of research, I've mentioned this on my Twitter, it's like, look, in reality, in terms of people who you have daily contact with, there's one to two people you have daily contact with outside of your family. It's typically a girlfriend and boyfriend, your partner and a best friend. The second layer of social networks underneath that is three to six people that you contact on a weekly basis. That's your like close-knit group of friends. Yeah. And then the third layer is literally everyone else. They're just acquaintances, right? So in reality, you get four to seven people that are your true friends, literally a handful. And that's actually probably all you need. And that's how it's always been traditionally, because it's hard to have true intimate relationships with people who are providing you with instrumental support being they actually have your back they'll pick you up from the airport bury a body if they need to that kind of friend that's kind of ride or die is serious but to me i think that's actually good news in the sense that you don't need to maintain a thousand friends or keep in touch with even a hundred of them if you have a handful of deep meaningful relationships of people who actually care for you and will support you you're gonna do well and yeah, you can have a broader network of acquaintances, but treat them like acquaintances in the sense that like you're friendly and whatever, but you're not necessarily expecting more than that. So I think that alleviates pressure from a lot of people. Well said. I mean, I think it's like actually a good way to think about it because I think there's this expectation that you should have so many friends. And it's like, if you really think about it, like how many of your friends are like really going to be ride or die? Like and vice versa. Right. How many people would you ride or die for? Exactly. Yeah, because like, back then, Ancestor, and I share this as an example, like Scythian warriors literally had blood brothers. Yeah. And they almost like dated just like you date for the significant other because the significance of a blood brother was if you went off to war and you died, your blood brother would take care of your family. So you'd have to trust this person to be that important. And so they literally had a limit. You had three and you couldn't have more because if you had more, then you couldn't be loyal to more than three people because you're not going to take care of a lot of people's yeah. families. Yeah. Right. And so it was a very serious thing where the people would literally engage in ritualistic courtship to like, do I trust you enough that you're going to be the equivalent of like, I guess, modern day society calls it like a godfather, whatever that term or Most that notion of like is. a startup perspective, like a co-founder or something, yeah, yeah. right? It's just like, these are very, very deep relationships on par of the marriage. Right. And it should be considered as such because quality obviously trumps quantity. Yeah. But that anecdote or that example is just an example of like, that's something that you can learn from ancestral tradition yeah. where a lot of people don't know that. They think like, oh, I got to keep up with hundreds or maybe even like, I think I have like 2,500 Facebook friends. I would, yeah. It would drive me insane if I tried to keep up with that many people, yeah. right? Yeah. But if I have this notion of like, oh, like traditionally, I you only have four to seven real friends and then a bunch of other people that you're friendly with and you know yep. you have good relationships with. You're going to say hi to your baker and your butcher and you know, give them a gift at the end of the year. It doesn't mean you need to be mean to those folks, yeah. but it's a different type of relationship with sort of community members and acquaintances. And I think when you practice things that are a little bit more in line with tradition and social convention because of the Lindy effect, because that's probably like how much we can handle, just like the Dunbar numbers, like you can't really remember more than 150 people anyway. Yeah. So it's an unrealistic <laughs> expectation to try to manage more than that. Yeah, I think you're more in line to have a happy, healthy and flourishing sort of life. 
the counterbalance to that is we do live in a society where we do have these modern tools and we probably can't escape or get away with them. So my sort of notion is to figure out a way to use the tools to your benefit rather than having the tools use you. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what I was saying, saying about the example of like, it's amazing to me that these modern tech companies essentially get free work out of us. Right. Facebook gets you to post free content. Instagram gets you to post free photos. Yelp gets you to post free reviews. You get like nothing in return. You're like a free worker essentially for them. And they're sucking all your time and attention and serving you ads and making money off of you, by the way, at the same time, too. It's not inherently evil, but it is what it is. That's just the business model. And so if you're aware of that, you're like, okay, you know, that's what they're getting out of it. What am I getting out of it? Right. And maybe for me, I don't have people in my proximal network community right now that are going to make an ideal four to seven friend. But I did develop a relationship in college that with a guy who was like a really good friend. And now he lives on the East Coast and I'm going to use Snapchat or I'm going to use a social network to set up a weekly video call so I can keep in touch with that person and maintain that relationship in a way that I never could in a pre-technological era. Very cool. Right. So that's what I mean about it's like technology is not inherently evil. It's just a tool. But unless you're very intentional about how you use it, how you restrict it with dopamine fasting. And you can almost like use ironically tools in line with ancestral or like traditional, you know, values or systems, but using it to your advantage. Well said. I mean, I think you would be hard pressed to call us Luddites, right? Like you're clearly incorporating the latest science, latest technology into our lifestyles and our lives. But it's how to use those tools wisely. And I think that's well said there. So I know we had a number of audience questions, but it looks like we only have time for one. And we're going to choose... The question from our mutual friend, right. Jerry Teixeira, who asks about New Year's resolutions since this is January, kicking off the new year, the new decade. What are your best practical tips around resolutions? Are they legitimate? If you could just maybe share the history of why this even existed in the first place and maybe some techniques to really stick to goals. So I wrote a whole article about this and I encourage you know viewers to read it afterwards. It's called. It's actually called The Keystone Habit. I think the subtitle is how four minutes a day can change the next four years of your life. And I actually mean that very literally in the sense that, you know, I I always joke that New Year's resolutions should be called rest illusions because people have the illusion that they're actually going to stick with them. I think there's actually data on this, like the overwhelming majority of people clearly don't. I forgot what it is, probably like 80 percent like of resolutions fail. And I think the reason they fail is because people don't institute a process or a system in order to practice and iterate on them. So I actually think it's important to have sort of a meta habit that helps you institute your habits. And so I call that the keystone habit. It's a little confusing because Charles Duhigg and other people refer to keystone habits as like fundamental habits like exercise and sleep and diet and all those other things. I actually don't think they should be called the keystone habits because it's probably like five or 10 keystone habits. But I think there's one keystone habit. And the one ultimate sort of keystone habit is the system that you have for setting goals and tracking and instituting it. The way that I do it is essentially it's a four minute exercise. So basically at the beginning of every day, you just sit down with pen and paper, you can use a notepad, computer, whatever that you like to use as your medium. And then you say, what am I going to do for the next four hours or essentially the morning, right? So set an intention and be like, all right, this is how I'm going to spend my time, right? And then by the time you get to the end of that four hours, typically around your lunch break, you do another four minute keystone in which you spend the first half of it reflecting on the last four hours and be like, all right, did I do what I said I was going to do? If I did, 
great. What enabled that success? If I didn't, what got in the way? What were the barriers? And then spend the next two minutes, this other half of the Keystone Habit, being like, okay, based on what I just reflected on and learned, what am I going to do differently this time? All right, so first of all, I may have different goals for the afternoon because it's the afternoon. I may have different meetings or a different schedule. But second, if I was really like, let's say, trying to get some writing done, but I procrastinated a lot, I got distracted with social media, blah, blah, blah. What am I going to do differently now in the afternoon so I don't waste the entire day away like I did the morning? So it allows you to iterate a lot faster, essentially, on whatever it is that you're working on. Because how most people do New Year's resolutions is set a resolution in January. It's probably not even smart in terms of being specific, measurable, actionable, right. I relatable. Team it's like, okay, yeah. great. Like, what are you going to do to get What there? are you going to do, yeah. right? It should be obviously a smart goal would be like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'm going to the gym at 730 at Gold's Gym, yeah. et cetera. So people get that notion of it, but they don't take the extra step of being like, where am I having the time to essentially reflect on whether I'm doing it or not? So if you're actually doing a keystone, multiple times a day. So the general schedule that I recommend is you do a four minute one in the morning, the afternoon and the evening. And it's always for the next four hours. At the end of the day, you do a longer one, which is 15 minutes, in which you reflect on the whole day. So there's three keystones that you did at kind of like 9, 12, and let's say 4pm. You go back and read those. And you create a summary for the day and say, Okay, how did today go? Did I do my goals or not? Why or why not? And what's my plan for tomorrow? So that when you wake up the next day, you look at the, at least the summary section of that last summary keystone and say, all right, what am I doing now that it's Tuesday of this day? And so the idea is, is treating yourself almost like a product, right? In that if you're in sort of the software, the product development world, you do a sprint and you're supposed to constantly iterate quickly on these things so that if you get thrown off, you can kind of get back on track. That's the thing that gets people in most trouble is that they'll fall off the wagon in terms of resolution but they might not even remember they had a resolution or what exactly it was or why they got thrown off in order to get back on. And so you need that sort of system essentially to be able to iterate and get back on the wagon. So Keystone, almost analogously to dopamine fasting, allows for extended periods of time where you do longer and longer reflections. So as I mentioned, four minutes, three times a day. At the end of the day, you do a 15-minute one. So you do this Monday through Saturday At the end of the week, you do a longer one where you look back on the entire week and be like, okay, how did I do Monday through Sunday, essentially, looking back? And you're not rereading all of the keystones that you did. You're just reading the summary ones, right? And then the same thing. So you do a longer one at the end of the week, end of every quarter, end of every year. And actually even recommend doing one at the end of every four years where you'll think about like, wow, like I went through college and we just went through a four-year experience. Like, let me spend a week. You don't have to lock yourself in a room for a week, but let me spend a week while I'm, you know, after graduating to be like, man, what did I do? Like, what went well? What did not go well? What do I want to do differently now that I'm 22 and I got the next four years ahead of me? Right. So I think it's an incredibly helpful practice. And I think I literally did the math. It doesn't take a lot of time. I think it's like, I mean, four times three plus 15, 27 minutes, 27 minutes a day. But the ROI on that 27 minutes is incredible because you get back on track so much faster. And I use this, by the way, in my clients and with in private practice. Yep. Whenever I have clients that particularly struggle with low conscientiousness or they're somewhere on the ADHD spectrum where they have difficulty with organizing, discipline, sustaining attention, where some of these things don't come natural, I suggest it as a system. And you can use it flexibly, obviously, like where, you know, if you don't have 15 minutes in the day, use 10 minutes. Like, look, it's perfect is the enemy of good, as I always say. But the consistency of the habit 
is critical because I'll give you an example of why it's so important. Most people, they're exhausted when they come home from school or work and they waste their evenings away, right? They just kind of do whatever, quite frankly, they feel like. And the, uh, yeah, I think we all <laughs> empathize, right? Just Netflix, YouTube and chill, right? Exactly. I get it. We all get it. Which is not a bad thing yeah. if it's intentional, yeah. right? But most people, it's not intent. It's totally emotional, right? Where, you know, if you're maybe intentional about it, you're like, okay, I am going to go home and eat dinner. I do want to enjoy Netflix for an hour. I should spend an hour maybe with my girlfriend or my best friend in New York and do that video chat thing that I talked about. And then like, I want to learn and grow in some way. Maybe I want to spend 30 minutes reading a book, right? But I'm going to set out essentially that schedule so that it's clear what my intentions are. And I have a plan to do it. I anticipate what's going to get in the way, which is like, Netflix has that auto loop thing and it's going to I'm going to want to watch another episode. So yeah. I'm going to pre plan how I'm going to get away from that by telling my girlfriend to come over at seven o'clock so I don't watch it for the entire evening. Yeah. So obviously, when you anticipate sort of these issues, you plan ahead, you make a goal, you make a plan for it, you're much more likely to execute on it. And inevitably, if you fail, because we're all, you know, human beings, and we're not perfect, you'll check in at the end of the night and be like, okay, it didn't go so well, let me do something differently next time. So it's this constant sort of iteration process. Sometimes it's called continual improvement. The Japanese call it Kaizen. Yeah. It's continually making small little improvements on yourself. And by having just little check-ins, basically multiple times throughout the day, it allows you to be much more successful with whether it's your New Year's resolutions or whatever it is that you're working yeah, on. Yeah, it's super cool. I really like your articulation of that. I mean, the most impressive people that I come across always seem very self-aware and very much improving their own habits. Sounds like you have a very nicely defined protocol to make sure you do that. I'm kind of inspired actually to like do that myself. It's cool. Like awesome. it sounds like, you know, it's a nice block of time. It's not too intrusive. And, you know, in business, right, you have quarterly reviews or exactly. quarterly OKRs or annual reviews, annual annual goals, annual planning. And it makes sense to do it for yourself. That's a great analogy. Be the CEO of your life, yeah. basically. Yeah, whether it's treating yourself as a product, treating yourself as a company. Yeah. yeah, I think that's another great example of a Lindy effect. Like OKRs or things like OKRs, you know, having weekly check-ins with your managers, having quarterly reviews, having annual reviews in terms of performance reviews, yeah. to some degree of survive because it naturally fits certain time structures, yeah. but also it's incredibly useful, yeah. right? So that's the great question in terms of like people are asking like, why should I do a Keystone habit? It's like, well, you would build a product this way. You would develop a company this way. And we know these are best practices. Yeah. Why don't you treat your life in the same way, yeah. right? We almost give more credit to sort of external things than we do ourselves. But you are your just system, as valuable, your, your system, your product, yeah. right? Or at least a product, not in a commoditized way, but in terms of you are certainly trying to grow and develop and, and just like as you would with a, a product or a business. Yeah. And using those best practices from the business world and applying it to your own life is absolutely crucial yeah. for your well-being. This is a fascinating conversation. We definitely need to have you back on to explore some of the nuances and details and have a little bit more time to answer some of the audience questions. So as we wrap up here, where do people find you? What are some upcoming projects? What should folks uh, look out for? Yeah, I've been uh, active on social media, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's Dr. Sepah, D-R-S-E-P-A-H. I love to engage with folks so you can, you know, write a tweet or a DM and I, I pretty much respond to everyone. Hopefully I'll be able to sustain that without, you know, driving my own attention uh, off the wall. I'm going to be more active with my newsletter actually this year. So you can sign up. It's docdoc.substack.com. So you can sign up for my newsletter. So whenever I post a new article, I think I'm going to actually update both the dopamine fasting and the Keystone um, habit ones um, for the new year. 
and share that with everyone who's on the email list. And I'm actually working with a developer to make a Keystone Habit app, actually, that makes this process even easier. Cool. So if any anyone who's watching this wants to be a beta tester, um, you can go to, I think it's thehabit.app uh, is the website. And um, it's just a landing page right now. We're just collecting email addresses. But if people want to try it out, they can do that as well. So yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm pretty Googleable and publicly present. Um, but I love engaging with folks. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions or feedback. I'm always, you know, uh, have the humility that, you know, as I, you know, develop some of these concepts and best practices, I love hearing back from folks and giving feedback. I had someone who actually was reached out, reached out from Ecuador who was doing dopamine fasting because he was like a political news junkie and was like using it for that reason. Yeah. And you learn and grow from that because they'll give feedback. You know, here's some things that I found that was helpful. Maybe you should put that in the next version of your article in terms of like how do you actually like put into best practice. So I love hearing from folks and helping my own sort of growth and development so I can help more people in turn. All right. Thanks so much, Cam. Thank you. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.